Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. When I was in college, for the first time in my own life, I met a group of Christians that were unlike any I'd previously encountered in one particular way. They were very keen on defending God's sovereignty, really at any cost. They were Calvinists, people in the Reformed Protestant tradition in the theological heritage of John Calvin. Of course, we were all college kids, so none of us were all that good at nuanced disagreement. And so it would be unfair to pin the merits of an entire branch of Christianity on these young people, which I won't do. But these were my first real theological arguments that I remember having. These guys defended God's prerogative to do whatever God wanted to do. After all, God is God, right? Who are we to limit God's power, to question God's goodness, no matter what? This included, and as they pointed out, was clearly written in Paul's letters, or so it seemed, God's right to choose who would be saved, and crucially, who would be damned to eternal hell before being born, before existing, before having any chance to respond to God's gift of salvation. Needless to say, like so many millions of Christians over the centuries, we clashed over this issue. Having not been raised a Calvinist, I was not inclined to think that this was the only acceptable reading of Paul. Also, the whole idea never jived with my understanding of justice. How could God punish someone 
for something they didn't choose? And how could this be considered just in any meaningful way? But the goal of today's episode is not to persuade you of my own view. It's rather to have Dr. Don Thorson present a biblical, ecumenical, and orthodox understanding of this topic that is held and has been held by far more Christians over the millennia than Calvin's own view of predestination, the one so vigorously defended by my debate foes some 15 years ago. Predestination in the Calvinist tradition has a catchy acrostic or mnemonic device that helps students remember its five tenets. TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Don will walk us through what each of those stands for, as well as his alternative to TULIP, ACURA. Don believes that most Christians believe, or at least live as if they believe, something much closer to Acura than Tulip, including most people in the Reformed or Calvinist tradition. Both acrostics, Tulip and Acura, and the theological claims represented by each letter are spelled out in the show notes if you want to take a look as you listen. Now again, like so many episodes of this show, my goal is not to say that you must not be a Calvinist, that you must reject predestination. No, not at all. Many loving and excellent Christians are Calvinists, including my Reconstruct co-host, John Raines. But if you have ever been told that to be a Christian, to really take the Bible seriously, to really truly submit to God, that that means you must accept this very difficult doctrine, Dr. Thorson and I are here to say unambiguously that that is a lie. You can follow Christ and reject the doctrine of predestination. In fact, most Christians before you and in all likelihood after you have done and will continue to do just that. So let's get into it with Azusa Pacific University's professor of theology and Christian history, Dr. Don Thorson. So, Don, let's get some basic background here. Like, how can we best visualize and situate Calvinism within the broader Christian tradition? At the time of the Protestant Reformation, people like Luther and Calvin responded to uh, what they thought were abuses in the Roman Catholic tradition. And both Luther and Calvin advocated going back to the Bible, but they also looked at the Bible through the eyes of Augustine, who in the area of predestination and election was one of the few areas where the church didn't largely follow Augustine's teachings. Mm. And Augustine is like 4th century AD. Correct. But then you're saying for another 1,100 years or so, people didn't take that part of his thought very seriously. Well, uh, probably no one has influenced Christendom more than Augustine after the biblical authors. Yeah. And Augustine wrote so many things that people could kind of pick and choose, and there are different schools of Augustine. Right, he's super prolific, right? But yeah. but the the strongly predestinarian uh, branch was not followed by the ancient church, and so I like to say that the majority viewpoint is what I would call semi-Augustinian or semi-Augustinianism, and and unfortunately, what has happened in at least the Protestant tradition is people tend to think in either or categories. Mm either you're Augustinian or you're Pelagian. 
But in the reality, there are a number of viewpoints that are in between. What's Pelagianism again, for well, those of us not familiar or who uh, Pelagius was a contemporary of Augustine, and we don't have any writings of his existent, unfortunately. But Augustine said that Pelagius advocated that people could basically uh, live righteous lives and therefore earn your salvation. Earn their salvation, works righteousness. And, and so uh, Augustine attacked what he thought was Pelagian works righteousness. But at the time of the Reformation, you again had this kind of binary, bifurcated viewpoint where it's either you agreed with the Augustinian, Lutheran, Calvinistic way of viewing things, or you were Pelagian. And that's really not true. I mean, I don't doubt, I don't disagree with the fact that there were abuses in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions. But uh, I would argue that uh, Luther and Calvin went to sort of an extreme in terms of advocating that God does everything and we do nothing. Yeah. In theory, that sounds nice and neat rationally and systematically, but it doesn't always reflect our real life practices. And I would say it doesn't really reflect biblical teachings either. Yeah. So now, 2018, Calvinism is, you know, one of many ways of thinking about Christianity. What's its role in the United States? What's its role and, and its ratio in the in world Christianity? I'm not going to take anything away from the genius of Calvin. He was an amazing theologian. Yeah. What, from a theological perspective, one of the things he did that was so successful is that he put his theology in one book or uh, one volume, yeah. the Institutes yeah. of Institutes, the Christian Religion. Yeah. And so when people went out into the world... And they said, what does it mean to be Protestant? You know, Luther had a lot of fragmented, not fragmented, but he didn't have a systematic theology. He's writing treatises between right. beers and... Yeah. <laughs> and so what Calvin yeah. did is he put everything in one book. And if people ask, well, what does it mean to be Protestant? You can just hand him this book and say, this is it. This is it. Yeah. Western civilization, in addition tended to become increasingly rationalistically oriented. The direction that Calvin went happened to be where the direction that society went. Exactly. The Enlightenment followed a century after uh, Luther and Calvin. And and in the West, people admire neat, rational systems that answer all the questions you have to ask. You may not like the answers, Mm -hmm. but they have answers. And so I think a lot of people from a Protestant perspective, just don't know that there are alternative beliefs. Right. They just think either you're Calvinist or you're Catholic or you're Calvinist or Pelagian, which is a heresy. And so, of course, why would would you want to be anything but Calvinistic? Yeah. And and the strength of Calvin's ideas is that they're so rational, logical, and systematic. Yeah. But worldwide, I mean, what percentage of Christians are really Calvinists? I like to make the argument— that first of all, there are more Catholics than in all Protestants yeah, and Orthodox together. More than half, yeah. And then after that, you have the Orthodox Christians, which tend to be not Augustinian, but what I would call semi-Augustinian. Okay. Then after the Protestant Reformation, you had the Church of England and the Anglican tradition, which didn't really want to affirm fully the Catholic Church. They didn't want to fully affirm the Continental Protestant uh, Reformation of Luther and Calvin. Yeah. And so they always saw themselves as a via media or middle way, but they tended to be more like this semi-Augustinian viewpoint yeah, yeah. that said that they believe that although God is sovereign and God provides a plan for humanity, God restricts freedom over individuals so that at some point they need to make a genuine choice whether to accept or reject God's offer of salvation. 
Right. Whereas the Augustinian, Lutheran, and Calvinistic tradition puts more emphasis on how that is all determined by God before the world is created, and that in this yeah. life we discover God's plan for our life. But so if Protestantism is roughly 35% or so of worldwide Christianity, and then it, within that you've got Pentecostalism, which does not tend to be Calvinist, we're talking, what, 10, 15% of worldwide Christians really have this? I would agree that both in ancient history and today, the overwhelming majority of Christians are not anywhere close to Calvinism. Yeah. However, again, Calvinists have sort of the, the gift or the talent of being very good academically. Yeah, right. They, they publish more books. They yep. buy more books. They have more publishing houses. Uh, they, have, they emphasize the study of Scripture. And, and mm. so uh, I would argue that they have, to their credit, had an, an, an overly large influence. Yeah, an outsized influence, yeah. On the, the intellectual or theological understanding of people, even though it conflicts with how they practice in their day-to-day life. Mm. Yeah. But I would still say that for, in terms of, of adherence, yeah, Calvinists are a minority, but mm-hmm. intellectually, at least in the Protestant tradition, they still tend to be dominant. Yeah, and then of course in America, in American Protestantism, you know, we we have a lot of Catholics in America, but Americans' civil religion, Americans' kind of standard Christianity, tends to be more Protestant, and Baptists are are tend to be Reformed, and so you get a you know all the Baptist churches and all the Dutch Reformed and all the Presby- most of the Presbyterians, and so you, you end up having a huge contingent within the states, and then you throw you add in that outsized intellectual, and I would say even sort of pastoral influence, like John Piper and, and these guys are very good. Tim Keller very good at at like presenting a concise. It's almost like in the age of marketing, they're also well suited because they're good at being concise about their message. And that's what's true of the acrostic tulip. Right. It makes yeah. a nice, neat little system yep. that can be easily uh, communicated, easily understood, even though in practice, I don't think people live that way. Hmm. It's almost like the way that Trump is able to make the news about him. Love him, hate him, ambivalent. You're talking about him. Tulip is functions very similarly for at least theologically minded Americans. It's either I'm into Tulip, I like some of it, I, I reject it, but Tulip is framing much of the conversation. Though I trust the formulators of Tulip better than uh, the formulations sure. that Trump has come up with. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. Um, <laughs> now, we're going to get into that, the, the acronym Tulip and what those five points are, but even at a more basic level... Your, your layperson would understand Calvinism is the view that ends up with the consequence of God chooses everyone, whether they will be saved or damned individually before they are born. So to be saved is simultaneously to get God's grace and salvation and also to realize that one has been elected from before time. Correct. Right, and that's what d- differentiates Calvinism from other so types just, of Christianity. You know, they would describe it, describe it as discovering God's plan for your life, discovering mm-hmm. that you are the elect, and it's basically an, an affirmation that if you have faith, it's an affirmation of what God has already done. Right. It's not really your choice. It's rather an acknowledgement or an awareness that I am elect. 
Yeah, and you you can see the value of that in terms of it it leads to a kind of a humility. Someone I've I've had friends who are Calvinists say I take great comfort in the fact that I don't I'm not doing this that God is doing it and God gets the credit not me because God is deserves the credit not me. And from a pastoral perspective, Calvin thought this is indeed a great encouragement because if you have faith, you must be elect. You mm-hmm. would never have faith if you were not elect, and if you're elect. There is no way you can become unelect. This was decided before your life. So no matter how well or how poorly you live in this life, it will have no impact upon your eternal life. That is uh, set. Hmm. But let's motivate really quickly why someone might have a problem with predestination, with TULIP, with Calvinism. I mean, the most basic idea is, you know, someone will say, so you're telling me that before people were ever born— uh, God decided that billions of them, perhaps, would go to hell, and there's nothing that they can do to go to heaven? That, on the face of it, seems incredibly unjust. Uh, well, there are many reasons why I think people would find the strict Calvinistic teachings difficult uh, to accept. Of course, the problem of sin and evil is one of the biggest problems, because yeah. if God has determined everything, then why did God create a world in which so much evil, sin, pain, and suffering might occur if God determines everything. Right. And then with regard to electing some, of course, that's why Calvin was so happy, but why God would choose some to be reprobate or to be damned eternally, Calvin said that's simply a, a, a horrible decree. He admitted that, but he said it's not something you should really think through too much because it probably won't be edifying. But he said, we sometimes simply have to submit to God, who is our heavenly father, he would say, and that if God is all-powerful, we simply have to accept that God's rationality supersedes or transcends our rationality, and that when we get to heaven, it'll make sense. But in this life, Mm -hmm. there are certain mysteries we simply must accept. So to pick up on what you said about sin and evil in the world, uh, for people who believe in any kind of free will— any kind of, it's called libertarian free will, truly free will, they have at least a partial response to the problem of evil and suffering in the world, which is that, hey, if God wants to be in relationship with beings that can freely love him back, well, then they have to be able to freely not love him back. Absolutely. And so that will result in a bunch of suffering and evil. So so genuine love can only occur where there's genuine freedom of choice. Genuine choice, right. Now, that doesn't solve all the problems. There's natural evil, which doesn't involve human beings and stuff like that. But it's, a, it's at least a, a strong form of argument against the logical impossibility of a good God and, and suffering, especially suffering caused by humans. But if you're Calvinist on this point, if you say, look, God decides ahead of time which individual people are going to be able to be in relationship with him, then it would seem like you don't. he doesn't need to give, make them angels and make them angels and demons, basically. There's no reason to give them free will. If free will is the reason that we have all this suffering, then it's not hard to imagine a world, well, since there's no free will anyway, why is there all this suffering? Right. Well, most Christians throughout church history, when it comes to the so-called problem of evil, usually reduce down to this title or first line of, an, of a medieval hymn that says, O Felix Culpa, or O Fortunate Crime. And it's always the Christian belief that it is better to have created a world in which people had some measure of freedom and fell, and then were redeemed by Jesus, 
rather than to have never had that world created at all. Right. Now, you can agree with that logic or disagree with that logic, but that's usually the Christian response. Yeah. So personally, I have a lot of friends who are Calvinists. I go to a Calvinist church, even though I'm not a Calvinist. And uh, I don't begrudge those friends. I disagree with them. But my cards on the table, I think of it like this doctrine of predestination and, and the problem of evil and suffering are just such huge problems for me that I just think, well, if there are other ways of interpreting scripture and there are other Christian theologies, I'm going to pick one of those. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my motivation for the conversation is just, well, let's let's rethink this one because it's not the only option. But a lot of people, especially if they grow up in the South, maybe in a Baptist sort of milieu, they might not even be aware that there are other ways of thinking about atonement, other ways of thinking about salvation, other major thinkers in the Christian tradition uh, who have disagreed with Calvin. Well, um, the biggest reason why I do not find Calvinism appealing, not only because I don't think it's the best way of interpreting Scripture, but it just doesn't work in practice. Hmm. Uh, We all live as if our decisions make a difference. Right. And I like to make the argument somewhat jokingly, that I've never met a parent in my life who raised their kids as a Calvinist. Hmm. Because parents work for dozens of years putting all their effort into helping their children to make wise decisions because they think that the more they train their children, the better their decisions will be in the future. Hmm. Now, if you're really a five-point Calvinist, you will say that's already been determined. And so it should alleviate some of the sense of, of urgency in training your children. But most parents I know are still quite earnest in their parenting. Yeah. But even as adults, uh, most of us think that decisions we make in this life, we need to pray about it. We need to talk about it in order to make wise decisions. And that kind of runs counter, at least theoretically, with uh, the five-point Calvinistic way of looking at the world. Though the five points of Calvinism mostly have to do with salvation. Yeah. But I'm talking about things in general. But even as a as, a, as someone who looks at the, the doctrine of salvation, many of us have talked to people who, who say they want to believe and they just can't quite make that decision. And we think the decision is important. And almost every kind of evangelistic outreach you know from Billy right. Graham on emphasizes decision, the right. importance of decision. And so it seems contrary, and I, whenever I teach my classes uh, at the university, I always write on the board, in almost every class, the words theory and practice. And I say, don't just tell me what you believe, tell me how you actually live. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with regard to the Bible, I'll ask them, what do you think about the Bible? And they'll say, oh, it's God's word, it's, it's, it has no errors, it's authoritative, it's wonderful. And I'll say, how often do you actually read it? Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. maybe read it on Sunday. And do you consider it, use it for making your day-to-day decisions? Well, no, of course not. And so I say that's what your view of the Bible really is. That's what is. you really think of it. That's yeah. what you really believe. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we think, well, usually we think our practice is worse than our theory. We have a great theory. God is sovereign. God has ordained everything. Yeah. There's a plan. But how do you live? Well, I don't live anywhere close to that. Uh-huh. But they think I need my life is bad, my practice is bad, my theory is good. But this is the opposite. But sometimes I tell people, sometimes you don't have a theory that helps you. Hmm. And sometimes you need to rethink that. Yeah. And it's because of what I would call a kind of tribalistic attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, you raise as a kid that the United States is the best country in the world. 
And then when you find out that there are good things in other countries, you want to disprove it or argue against it. And, and a lot of people just refuse to think that my country or my state or my church or my family isn't perfect in all ways. Mm. And you'll either live in denial or you live in anger or you'll live in a kind of belligerent way against other viewpoints because you want to maintain this theory even though in practice it is impossible. Hmm. Yeah, and so there, there are times where our theory truly is higher than our practice, right? Where I say, I think I ought to be selfless all the time and I'm not selfless all the time. Uh, we, we were joking yesterday when we were walking around about you know go, doing a uh, end times seminar getting people all riled up, and then at the end of it saying, we got realtors in the back and financial analysts to help you liquidate your retirements and sell your houses, and then people would start going, whoa, hold on, I don't know if I really believe that. But then this is an instance of the opposite, where you're saying there are a lot of people, especially in America, their theory is Calvinist because it's the only one they think they can have, Correct. but in practice they live a more loving, more actually honest or, or a di- they just live a different thing. More self-aware life. Yeah. I would say a life that has more integrity. Yeah. And I think that the better aware you are of how your your theories or your theology match your practice, uh, the happier you'll be, the more effective you'll be, uh, and the more, you know, winning you'll be. Yeah. If you enjoy this podcast or enjoy other podcasting work that I've done in the past, if you think that it is a valuable addition to your life and the lives of your community, would you consider becoming a patron? It starts at only $5 a month, and it includes two bonus episodes for patrons only every single month. Those are episodes that do not play anywhere else. And they're really fun. It's quite a variety of topics. I really free myself up to talk with anybody interesting about any interesting question. Patrons also will be able to submit questions and topics for future episodes like that and future Q&A episodes. And of course, you get access to all the previous patron conversations that I've already had and posted on that platform. Here are a couple clips in kind of no particular order of little bits of those conversations. So the hiddenness of God is an assertion of God's otherness, that God is this fundamentally, there's something about God that is other to us that like we can't just figure out by using our natural reasoning or our natural observations or our, it's, it's not something that we can intuit from our experience. He values loyalty more than anything. And loyalty is pretty amoral. The guy has no moral fiber to speak of as as far as looking at his life's record. I mean, this goes back decades. Partly as a result of having had, having had such like a tortured, that's way too strong a word, but sort of a, a humorously classical version of the evangelical experience of like accepting Christ 20 times as a child. And, and, and just finally, like in college, getting to the point where I'm like, man, if it's about like saying a prayer a certain way, like I've, I've said the prayer. I'm in. If at that's this what point, it is, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty in. Um, My passport has been stamped, stamped many times. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a 16 year old fan really does want to sleep with a front man and they lie about their age. Those things happen. Those happen in the music industry. I've seen it happen. And I'm not 
making an attempt to victim blame or anything. It's a part of this weird part of music culture that unlike TV, I can watch Brad Pitt on a movie, but I'm not in a situation where Brad Pitt could ever like call me out of a crowd backstage. To sign up for the Patreon, go to youhavepermissionpod.com. Thanks so much. Okay, so let's get into Tulip here. Okay. So uh, let's go one letter at a time. And then just to tease this for people, you have your own acronym, Acura, which is going to be a response to Tulip. So let's uh, let's go point by point. Through Tulip and Acura, one and then the other. Well, so let me just say that for years and years I taught theology and I would talk about the acrostic mnemonic device, memory device yeah. of Tulip. Stands for the, the first five letters stand for the five points that were established uh, at the Synod of Dort in the seventeenth century. So T stands for total depravity, U stands for unconditional election, L stands for limited atonement. I stands for irresistible grace, and P stands for perseverance of the saints. Yeah. Now, I would always give a contrast to those five points, reflective of what I call semi-Augustinianism, which yeah. includes Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, and then also the followers of Arminius. Mm-hmm. And so in Protestant circles, they often will say, let's compare Calvinism and Arminianism. Right. Well, that's Okay if you want to make Calvin the starting point for all theological dialogues. Mm. But if you do that, then you forget the whole history of the church. Right. And so I actually don't like to compare Calvin and and Arminius, even though that's an adequate c- contrast. Yeah. Um, I come from a Methodist background, and Wesley actually represents a, a, a counterpoint to Calvin. Okay, so just give us real quick what Acura stands for. Give us those five. Okay. Acura stands, first of all, for all are sinful. Second, for conditional election. Third, for unlimited atonement. Fourth, for resistible grace. And fifth, assurance of salvation. Okay, so let's go through this one at a time and uh, focus on the tulip and then the Acura version. So total depravity. This is a term that gets thrown around a lot. and A lot of times people don't actually know what Calvin meant by it. Um, maybe a, a, a common understanding is like, well, people are really messed up. You know, people are totally depraved. But my understanding is that total depravity means every part of being a human being is affected by the fact that we are sinful. Yeah, I think that's an accurate statement. Uh, if I were to, to state total depravity in the best way, it's that sin touches every part of life. Yeah. It's not necessarily that, that the depth of sin is right. thorough for everything, but every part of our life is touched by sin, and therefore we cannot earn our salvation. Yeah, breadth, not depth, maybe, in Correct. terms of sin. Yeah. Uh, but there are maybe some kind of darker corners of Calvinism, or darker, maybe even just kind of people with a darker psychology, and they can take total, total depravity much further, and just it can be a kind of a nihilism about the value of human beings. And, and I would say that I have heard several times in my life Preachers or teachers say, from a Reformed Calvinistic perspective, that if you put a sinful motive behind everything you do, Mm. 100% of the time you'd be right. Mm. Well, then that's like saying that a a mother's love for a child is sinfully motivated, Mm. that friendship between two men is sinfully motivated, that 
patriotism for your country is sinfully motivated. Mm. And if I had that kind of view, I wouldn't drive down a two-lane road. <laughs> yeah, it's not tenable. Because yeah. I'm assuming that everyone's going to try to kill me. Yeah. And great, Calvin said common grace prevents people from killing each other. Yeah. But that's that's kind of like an add-on to me to explain his mm. system. <laughs> well, and, and I think this is obviously not all Calvinist preachers, but I do think of uh, the, the famous moment in one of Mark Driscoll's sermons from Mars Hill in Seattle, the disgraced pastor that, you know, God hates some of you in the audience because statistically some of you are unelect and you're so depraved that you really have just earned God's total hatred and wrath. And not all Calvinists, of course, would say that out loud. Uh, but you, you can draw a line between Tulip and, and his claim. And Calvinism can look very harsh sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the Calvinist, Augustinian, and Lutheran traditions tend to emphasize most of all the sovereignty and power of God, whereas the semi-Augustinian tradition that includes my Methodist tradition tends to look upon the love of God yeah. as the determining kind of attribute. That's one way we, we might think of this whole tulip or accurate distinction is, what are you going to focus on, God's sovereignty or God's love? So if T is total depravity, A is all are sinful. Oh, sinful. And again, I think that's probably the point where these two comparisons are the closest. Uh, One way of thinking about this is uh, I've heard the orthodox term uh, rather than original sin is ancestral sin. The idea just being if you are a human being, then you will sin. There are no humans who don't end up sinning except Jesus. Right. Well, I'll leave the the discussion of original sin to another podcast. (laughs) But okay, so uh, non-controversial, all are sinful. Okay, what's the you in Tulip? Unconditional means that basically before the world was created, God just decided who would be saved. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. Yeah. So there's no condition. Hmm. Augustine and Luther said, we are thankful for why God elected some. It's a mystery why God did not elect everyone. Yeah. But Calvin said, if you're going to be rationally consistent, you have to say that God elected who would be saved and then reprobated who would be damned. Right. And that's what sometimes referred to as double predestination. Double predestination yeah. And again, Calvin said this is a horrible decree. I don't encourage you to try to ponder it too long. But if God is God, as we believe the Bible says, we have to just accept it. Yeah. I know Presbyterians, you know, people with Reformed theology, who say they do not affirm double predestination. They only affirm single. Right. And I, I respect the heart behind that, but I don't logically see how you can possibly mean anything real by that. If God chooses who will be saved, and if not all will be chosen, mathematically, God chooses who will not be saved. Right. Would you? Do you agree? Well, I like to tell the story of a, a guy, a Reformed Calvinist I once talked to, who talked about how he believes half of this point. Hmm. He believes that God elected some, but how some were reprobated, that's a mystery, which is closer to what Augustine and Lutheran said. But I pushed him on these so-called points, and I go... How many of these points do you affirm? Because some people say, I believe, four points or three points. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm a one and a half point Calvinist. (laughs) And I said, well, if you're a one and a half point Calvinist, why don't you just call yourself Arminian? He goes, no, No. I'm a Calvinist. (laughs) And so, again, for some people, that that theological tribe, even if it doesn't make sense rationally, cannot be forsaken for Mm. perhaps more emotional reasons than intellectual reasons. I'll do you one better than emotional reasons as well. I am a believer that people should stay 
within, broadly speaking, within their traditions or their institutions or their organizations until they really have a good reason to leave. I agree. And so if, for instance, my pastor or something thinks that there are people working on this question and that there is a promising way to affirm single destination, even if he's not a theologian himself, but he says, you know, I think people are working on that and I want to be around when they figure that out then I think, great. I mean, make make your own tradition as good as you can possibly make it. Personally, I, I can't affirm it because it doesn't make any sense to me. But, right. you know, I, I mean, a little more benefit of the doubt is all, I sure. guess, what I'm saying. So, okay, what's the C in Acura? Uh, well, C means conditional election, and that's usually understood from the perspective that God does not cease to know all things. God is still all-knowing. And that God elects people based upon God's foreknowledge of who will believe hmm. or who will accept and if you look at uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, 29, it says, those whom God foreknew, God predestined. Right. Well, Arminians or semi-Augustinians would, would argue that in that verse, it clearly says that foreknowledge precedes predestination, whereas Calvin turns it upside down and puts predestination ahead of everything. And of course, God only foreknows things because God has already determined it. Mm. So it, it's another reading of that verse uh, where you're just sort of kind of, it's a grammatical emphasis difference. Right. And even in verse Romans 8, 28, which is a, a very commonly quoted verse, uh, all things work together for good for those who know God, who are called according to God's plans and so on. Yeah. Well, Calvinists tend to say that all things work together meticulously. Every single thing is God's will. So if a plane crashes, you have to find what is the good plan in all this. Whereas uh, an Arminian or a semi-Augustinian would say that 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 all things work together for good in the same way a parent creates an environment good for a child, but that doesn't mean that every single thing that happens in the child's life is going to be good, but God has created a context that's best for that child. Okay, let's go on to L, limited atonement, right? Right. From a Calvinist perspective, and see, this is the point where most Calvinists say this is least like Calvin. Okay, so, th- so modern-day Calvinists say this is extrapolation. If there's one point where they feel like the followers of Calvin went too far in mm-hmm. interpreting Calvin, this was the point because okay. they would want to say that Calvin said, even though you can't find it explicitly, that Jesus only died for the elect and not truly for all people. Mm-hmm. They might say it was unlimited in terms of its sufficiency using causal language, but limited in its efficaciousness for only the elect. Right. So qualitatively, Christ's atonement is unlimited, but quantitatively, it's limited yeah. to the people who right. get atoned. Whereas from the standpoint of Acura, of unlimited atonement, it's the idea that Jesus died for everyone, but only those who believe and receive the gift will enjoy eternal life. Yeah, so this is this is kind of a, um, a sticky point that I think a lot of times people don't quite... Uh, and I didn't wrap my head around correctly for a while, limited atonement sounds, uh, it, it just, first of all, it sounds bizarre. At first blush, like, wait, uh, Jesus, like, for God so loved the world, right? Like, uh, obviously, everybody has a chance to say yes to Jesus. That's the kind of common sense view. And this this part of Calvin is like, no, Jesus literally did not die for the reprobate. He only died for the elect. And his atonement only covers the sins of the elect. I mean, when I first understood that, I was 
I think, offended. Yeah. Uh, having not been raised in that tradition, I was like, well, who are you to say that? So when people I have talked to who are Calvinists call themselves a four-point four Calvinist, this, this is, is the usually one the involved. one yeah. they don't, they first don't want to accept. I think uh, at our Presbyterian Church, we have a lot of four-point Calvinists who would reject this one. Yeah. They're probably three- or two-point Calvinists, yeah. <laughs> so in, sure. real, in practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then the alternative is unlimited atonement, and that's just the idea that, look, God becomes flesh, the Word becomes flesh, is crucified and resurrected to atone for sins. There's, of course, many ways to think about the atonement analogically, but whatever metaphor you want to use, it's available to all. That right. is a free gift that you can accept or not accept. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So then I... I, in uh, the acrostic tulip, stands for irresistible grace. Yeah. Calvin never used, in all the translations of Calvin, you don't find the word irresistible. It's efficacious. Hmm. But but it, it conveys the same idea that you cannot resist it. The actual, if God chooses you, you're chosen. But it has the idea that whatever God wants to do, you cannot resist. Well, in particular, God's grace you can't resist. God's grace you cannot resist. I mean, I, I love that idea. I mean, in, in a sense, like... I think I believe that. Well, of course, there are certain things that God has decided to do and didn't ask our advice. Yeah. And in yeah. that regard, God sent Jesus to die for our sins, and that was an irresistible act mm. on God's part. But right. our reception of the gift of eternal life, God does, from a the accurate perspective, want us to make a decision that isn't predetermined. Right. So I we uh, I'll break this down a little bit. When I say that God's grace is irresistible, uh, I mean in a final end of days, new creation sense. So I, I'm a universalist and, and I think that eventually all people, if they are given a chance to see God clearly and see themselves clearly, which we never do while we're alive, of course they would not resist uh, God's grace. But it, it's not coercive on God's part. It's just so good that you would never say no to it, kind mm -hmm. of kind of a thing. But of course, uh, what you're talking about is while we are alive on earth. And while we are alive, we certainly reject it all the time. You can go through your life and be selfish. You can say no to God's yes. Correct. God gives you real free will. And God from says... From the accurate perspective. Yes, from the accurate, yes. And, and God says, okay, Dan, you're married to Jaffrey. You can choose to love her today and be kind, or you can be a dick. You can do both. But but particularly, it's about salvation. But People can say it's initially no, I don't about want the it. talk of salvation, yeah. even though it has implications for implications, all of life's decisions. Yes. Great. Okay. So then, resistible grace is accurate, right? Accurate, resistible grace, and and let me use an analogy of a parent and a child. Okay. Uh, I say that Calvin sort of looks at the relationship with us as God as a parent, we're the child, as if we are one year olds. And and there is some kind of of gratuitous freedom that a one year old has, but if a parent wants the child to do something, the parent can forcibly make that child do it. Right. Whereas uh, I like to say that the Acura or the semi Augustinian viewpoint sees God in relationship to a teenager, mm. and you know. I'm a parent, and it's not as easy to control a teenager as a one-year-old. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, and yet, God wants that quality of love relationship. God doesn't want to always be in a relationship with one-year-olds. God wants mm -hmm. to be in a relationship 
with 13-year-olds or 21-year-olds or 61-year-olds. And Paul's language about milk and then solid food uh, goes to that point, right? Is it, is it There's a, a good progression. analogy. Right. There's a progression in the Christian exactly. life. Absolutely. And uh, the idea being that, yeah, that, that sort of one-year-old utter dependence, you, you understand the the draw of that spiritually in terms of like, in a lot of senses, we are utterly dependent. I mean, creation ex nihilo, which most people just think of as the Big Bang, is not really what that means. Creation out of nothing means the whole universe depends radically and consistently on God for our existence. So in a sense, yes, we are always one-year-olds in that sense. But the incredible claim of Christianity is also we become adults and teenagers in relation to God, and God actually entrusts us with the ability to respond to, to God. Another analogy that can get at what you just talked about is that the Calvinistic tradition has tended to have a, a legal or a penal way of looking at salvation, mm. the atonement. Yeah. And so you're saved because there is a like a legal switch that's clicked. Whereas from the semi-Augustinian, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Arminian, Wesleyan perspective, it's more relational. Mm. God wants to have us choose in a relationship. And then yeah. once we chose, God wants to continue to help us grow. Yeah, And so it's more of a of a of an either or viewpoint from Calvin, either you're saved or not saved, whereas from the uh, semi-Augustinian perspective, it's more of a quality relationship. And one uh, explanation I've heard for that distinction is that Calvin was a lawyer. That was his job. I'm sure that had an impact upon him. Yeah, I mean it's not the whole thing, but it certainly is a maybe the beginning I mean, of it. I, I, you could also say that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was more legal legal oriented. He tended mm. to think of things in terms of law. Yeah. And grace, and Calvin was drawn to that drawn Pauline to that. literature mm-hmm. to dominate in his understanding of God and salvation. Whereas the maybe the voices of James, Peter, the author of Hebrews, or the Gospels, John's, and the yeah John's Gospel and the other Gospels are not quite so legal. They're more the relational. Yeah, Jesus is this guy walking around us, and we're getting to mm-hmm. know him and yeah. trust him. Whereas from Paul's perspective, this is all done from eternity. Mm. So the last one is P, perseverance of the saints. What does that mean in layman's terms? This is probably the one point people love Calvinism far more. See, I would say in practice, more people act like the the semi-Augustinian accurate. Accurate, yeah. But this is the one where people, if, when I talk to a one-point Calvinist, I've never actually done that. Yeah, yeah. This is the one they don't want to give up. Hmm. Because perseverance of the saints says, if I have faith in this life, I could never have had it unless I'm elect. And if I'm elect, I can never, ever lose my salvation. Uh, yeah, this I, I understand the value of this, but I'm also very unnerved. This feels like a kind of a pernicious doctrine as well. It is. It's, it feels... So one thing that comes to mind, a friend of mine, uh, she talks about growing up with her dad, her parents, who are uh, kind of Messianic Jews, very into end times, very conservative. And she says, you know, dinner table talk was always either about when's the rapture coming or how we know that we're assured of our salvation. And when you hear her talk about it, you go, that sounds kind of neurotic. It's kind of a weird thing to talk about all the time. If you're so assured, first of all, why are you bringing it up again? But there's also almost a kind of emotional abuse about that. Like, you have this nine-year-old sitting there, and you're o- over and over going through, like, honey, you're, you're going to be assured of yourself. Like, you know, hell is the specter. And, like, 
it feels like the one point of tulip that's the most like I don't know psychologically unhealthy. Well, I I'm not sure I would say that. I mean, Calvin would of course see it as a great comfort. Sure. Um, I'm playing devil's advocate. I guess. I know. Yeah. I I think the problem people have here is that they just come into contact with too many people who either a live for years or decades as a Christian and then they seem to reject it all, mm. or uh, they have a problem with people who claim to be Christians and then they live lawless, adulterous, yeah. violent lives and they'll say, well, it doesn't matter for my salvation because I'm elect. But so are you saying that the perseverance of the saints is a way for your average Christian who sees those examples to solve that cognitive dissonance, that there must be something about God that we just don't understand? Well, usually Calvinists with whom I talk either say that someone who leaves a church was never truly... They were just mistaken. Right, mistaken. Yeah. Or that they never really... That God will bring them back before they die. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, so you're saying rather that uh, the evidences of people who clearly seem to right. leave faith and come back to faith or whatever, or get divorced or live these awful lives, seems to be evidence against right. P, against perseverance yeah. of the saints. Yeah. Now, from the perspective of Acura, yeah. assurance of salvation, this was the one point where actually James Arminius said, I'm not sure. Mm. So the, 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 four, the four points before this are all Arminian. This last point he was unsure about, whereas from my Methodist tradition, Wesley was very clear, yes, uh, you can reject your salvation. Mm. Of course, in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, in Anglican, you can be apostate. Yes, they've so always believed always that. So always the idea yeah. that you can reject your salvation. Uh, but Wesley said... Even though you can reject it, if you stay in good relationship with God, it's all still by faith. You're all you're saved by grace, not by works. Right. And and he believed that you, as you mature, have the witness of the Holy Spirit, where the the, whole, the Spirit bears witness mm-hmm. with our spirit that we're sons and daughters of God. Mm. And so that spirit of adoption is what gives you that assurance. But God, because a relationship is more how Wesley and the semi-Augustinian tradition understood salvation, you can always reject a relationship. Now, you can't lose salvation like you lose your keys. Right. You can't do it by accident. And you don't lose your salvation by sinning. And, of course, the, the, the liability of the accurate viewpoint is that sometimes people get neurotic or anxious yeah. about their salvation. And that's why Wesley emphasized assurance. I'm wondering why this... Assurance of salvation, can't lose it, was so pervasive in my own evangelical upbringing. And just kind of in conversations I've had with American Christians, when it's not really a part of most of world Christianity. So that's interesting to me, and I don't really know what that's about. If it, if it is a kind of neuroticism, if it's a kind of, I don't know, like, now I'll get real sort of psychoanalytical as like the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, dimly aware of how much our prosperity is at the hands of other people's misery. Are we, do we need something to make ourselves feel good that we are not in fact the ones ruining the planet and ruining the world? The second thought is about certainty. You know, you know, Pete Enns has his book, The Sin of Certainty. And, and this has been thrown around a lot in circles that I'm in, I think very helpfully that Christian faith is not Christian certainty. Christian faith requires decision. It requires uncertainty. If you know for a fact that by accepting Jesus, you're avoiding eternal hell, then that's not faith. That's just rational. You would be a fool not to do that. Uh, No amount of suffering 
for not cheating, you know, the, the, the uh, pain of not cheating on your wife and stuff would, is worth hell. So I, I, I buck up against this assurance. If assurance means certainty, mathematical certainty, I don't like that. If assurance means something like evidence that God is in loving relationship with you, I'm 100% on board because I do have evidence that God's in loving relationship with me. And, and in fact, my regular interaction with God through prayer and through God loving me through other people in the world in a way that looks like what happens in prayer, it does assure me. Uh, it, it gives me evidence and it keeps me psychologically healthy to continue living my life of faith and not constantly worry that I'm going to, you know, cross my T wrong and God's going to send me to hell for it. But if it's certainty, I'm super skeptical. So where would you put your A, assurance of salvation, on that continuum? Well, you talked about two things. Yeah, two things. Sorry, yeah. And I see the first one is more of a pastoral question and the second one is more of an intellectual or theological question. Okay. So I'll start pastorally. Yeah. I think pastorally, people struggle with this sometimes because they just don't have a theology that matches a real life. They don't yeah. have a belief system like the tulip system. You're supposed to be certain, but I don't feel certain. And and they said, well, that's that's just an emotional problem. Don't worry about it. But we do. In life, we yeah. still struggle with these things. And so I would argue that the Acura uh, acrostic actually says, let's work and help you to feel more assurance. Mm. Yeah. Whereas from the tulip perspective, it is certain, just go on. Don't don't worry about it. Right. But we still worry. And so pastorally, you're not really helping the person where they're at. Yeah. With regard to the intellectual or theological dilemma there, I, I would agree exactly with what you said. This preoccupation with certainty is not healthy. We are saved by faith, not by certainty. Mm. Certainty, We're not saved by knowledge, for instance. It could Paul could have said you're saved by knowledge. He didn't. Uh, so many of conservative and fundamentalistically oriented Christians in the world are really children of the Enlightenment. Mm. And the Enlightenment said certainly comes through rational proof or empirical proof. Yeah. And this is why people want to emphasize the inerrancy of the Bible, for example, because they say, I really don't need faith. I really don't need the Holy Spirit. I've got an inerrant Bible. Yeah. And therefore, I don't. I have all the certainty I need. I don't need to have this more uh, spiritual relationship with the Holy Spirit and faith. And yet I think that's what the Bible says you're saved by. Mm. And so I think that some contemporary Christians with good intentions want to help God by providing what they think are rational and empirical foundations for their faith. But I think faith is more relational than it is rational or empirical. What do you think the practical implications are uh, for the the regular lived out faith life of tulip or acura of someone saying this is I like this this represents what I believe. Well, I wrote about a book about five years ago entitled Calvin versus Wesley, and the subtitle was Bringing Belief in Line with Practice. Mm. And to me, the most important thing in comparing the acrostics of tulip and acura is that I'm trying to tell people how do you actually live your life. Yeah. And and don't think that my theologies that I've been taught by my parents or by my church or by my theology book at school is the right way to believe if my practice is not the same. And I'm not saying that your practice should determine your beliefs, but what I'm saying is if your beliefs and your practices are not close together, 
you're going to live with a constantly stressful life. Yeah, cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance because because you don't have a theology that reinforces your life. You have a theology that really really conflicts with and Mm. almost uh, attacks your life. Mm. I, I would encourage Christians simply to be open to looking at more than one way of viewing issues like predestination and salvation. And they might actually find themselves not just freed intellectually, but there might be an emotional and or spiritual benefit that comes about by uh, rethinking these topics of the so-called five points. Yeah, another way you might say that is there is a value to being a sort of internally consistent, unified person. Now, I'm not sure if in this life we'll ever be consistent. Well, sure. A more, more consistent. But yeah. I think more consistent will make you a happier, healthier, and more effective person in life and yeah. Christian. Okay. I have two last questions for you. Uh, the first is one that uh, there I imagine some people are hoping I'll ask. And then the second one is a wild card for fun at the <laughs> end. Okay. So the first one is, can you talk us through some of the just a couple of the main passages that five-point Calvinists or just strong Calvinists will use uh, almost as clobber verses or, you know, hey, it says it right here. I, if, if, a, if a Calvinist says, look, I'm reading this in the text, I don't have a choice. Th- those verses, what are those verses and, and do you have an alternate reading of them? Well, let me give two suggestions. Yeah. Uh, one is go to uh, Romans eight twenty-eight and 29. Just those two verses, just meditate on those mm. and and ask myself, uh, do I think that everything that happens in the world is good or does God allow some greater latitude, not only in terms of the decisions that people make, but the latitude in which the very world itself and nature, is it all predetermined or are there certain natural laws that run independently of God's direct will in our lives? Uh, another interesting thing to do is to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and you have the very well-known verse where God is saying, who will go and who shall I send? And Isaiah pops up and says, here am I, send me. Mm. And then God says, go and tell Israel and Judah they're damned. Destruction is coming. Well, in the New Testament, that scripture passage is alluded to five times, once in Matthew, once in Mark, once in Luke, once in John, and once in the book of Acts, usually in the context of the parables. Hmm. I argue that in the book of uh, Mark and Luke, they kind of follow Isaiah, where it seems that God has already decided things. You just proclaim to tell them what God has already decided. Yeah, what I've already said, yeah. John is kind of a a little bit of both, you know, because uh, Isaiah says, tell them to repent and believe, but God has hardened their their eyes and their ears. Yeah. But when you get to the book of John, it says, yes, the, he, he quotes Isaiah, but then he says, they have hardened their hearts and closed their eyes and, and closed their ears because of their decisions. And in Matthew and in Acts, it's much clearer. They say, people don't believe because they have decided against God. Mm. So, so there's some tension even within the biblical so witness I, about... Heart hardening. I try to tell people the reason why there is still debate among Christians over these topics is not because theologians in their ivory towers right. have created these arbitrary theologies. It's because even in Scripture, 
there's a tension there. Yeah. And so it's understandable why some people would be a Calvinist or why some people would be an Arminian or a, right. a Wesleyan. Yeah. And so if you go and look at Isaiah 6 and then see how it's alluded to yeah. in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and just contemplate on that, I think you'll be changed. Hmm. Okay. Or maybe not changed, but, but you will understand <laughs> uh, some of the, the biblical dilemma here, and it might help to give you some insight that, that, there, that there's not just one univocal answer here, yeah. and you can understand why Christians sometimes come up with slightly different viewpoints. Yeah. Okay, last question. This is my uh, curveball. I have heard of universalistic Calvinists, or maybe they're just Reformed. So they, w- they wouldn't be able to be full tulip. They'd have about to universal L. salvation? Universal salvation, okay. but they are in the Reformed Calvinistic tradition. So I'm guessing they'd have to drop L, limited atonement, but they could keep the rest of tulip. Yeah, we're depraved. God, before time, he decides who's going to be saved, namely everyone. It's irresistible. We don't. We have no way to say no to it. And of course, once the you know, perseverance of the saints would sort of be meaningless once saved. We're we're saved from the beginning of time. But this strikes me as an interesting way for people who really don't like the double predestination, but who just really like the way that Calvin thinks of God. Have you ever spoken with anybody about this? Have you read anything about this? Uh, Karl Barth is in the Reformed tradition. Yeah. And sometimes people call him the neo-reformed or Mm -hmm. neo-orthodox founder. And Bart has been interpreted by many of his followers as one who says that the only truly person who is elect is Jesus Christ. Mm. And that because in Jesus Christ all are saved, then in fact all are saved. Mm. And so references to election in the Bible have more to do with Jesus than with our individual elections. Interesting. In that regard, you could, I don't know how a Calvinist would interpret the L and Tulip. Yeah. But it could be a limited view of election being just for Jesus hmm. and that therefore all of us enjoy eternal life because salvation is universally applicable to everyone. Yeah. Let, let me riff on this for a second. Let's, let's say that you intuitionally were really drawn to the kind of legal. Uh, judicial model of salvation, if you felt like, you know what, I just think that like God can do whatever God wants. And so I'm really drawn to this idea that, yeah, it is a, there's a debt and it's, and it's God's choice and, and, and it's his sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in some sense, by, by the principles of justice, God is required to really hold a high standard. Then in light of that, God says, I'll send myself. And I'll take that. So you, you could imagine, yes, sure. a super high view of justice. Right. Uh, and then the, the beauty, the grace of God is saying, and, I, and I'm going to take it. And through that, I'm going to pay that for everybody. Yeah, sure. If you want to freshen up on Tulip and Acura, remember those acrostics are in the show notes, as is the text of Romans 8, 28 and 29, which Don mentioned. The books that Don mentioned, Calvin versus Wesley and Everything You Know About Evangelicals is Wrong. There's links to those books in the show notes. These episodes are intended to be resources to start conversations. So please share it, even with people who might disagree parents, friends, pastors, whomever. 
You can join the Patreon and get the two bonus episodes and also have access to the exclusive You Have Permission Facebook group, which I moderate. And I really do want to hear from you guys. Who should I interview? What topics should I cover? What questions are keeping you up at night? You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.